this particular topic is one of great significance in the Western world, as I hope to prove to you in the course of the night. It's, it's I think, appropriate that this takes place on the eve of Humanities Day in the city of Chicago. And I am particularly grateful to the Institute and to Catherine for having me lecture on, on this occasion. We are discussing tonight the primary Egyptian myth that defines much of the aspects of Egyptian civilization. The god Osiris and his wife and sister Isis. They're seated on thrones. My choice was not simply to be cute when I selected a title, but it is actually meaningful as you will see. The role of thrones is particularly important for these two deities because it's part of both of their names and the essence of what they are. The spelling of the name of Isis is simply the throne itself. She is the personification of the throne. And Osiris is written with a throne and an I sign, and it has been much disputed as to the nature of the actual meaning of that name, but it could mean the situation or position of activity. In other words, the ruler. The name Isis has been a particularly positive name until very recently. Back in the 1970s, there was a heroine, Mighty Isis, on TV and a whole line of comic books. And it is particularly unfortunate that certain modern uh, TV announcers have chosen this most inaccurate anagram which is not used by the US government nor by the individuals in Syria, Iraq itself. Either Islamic State or Isil would be appropriate, but please let's stop taking a sacred name of the goddess of protection, family, and happiness and joy and converting it into the name of terrorism. We will see this comic book come back in a moment. The god Osiris is a deity of death and regeneration, but he is not known from our earliest times. His temple site is at Abydos, and it's very near the modern town of Abydos and the temple, the tombs of the, the earliest periods of, the, of Egyptian history, dynasties one and dynasty two. In fact, in later times, the Egyptians assumed that the tomb of King Jer of dynasty one was actually the physical burials place of the god Osiris. The original deity who was in this temple site that Osiris would later take was a god named Khenti Amintiu, the foremost of the Westerners. This god has a form that looks like this. He was a recumbent jackal god. Over time, Osiris will take the title of Khenti Amintiu, that will become simply one of Osiris's titles, the foremost of the West, or foremost of the Westerners, where West refers to the land of the dead, where the sun sets. But the form of the jackal god will go to his son, Anubis, who will play a major role in the story. This is actually our earliest reference to the god Osiris. And as you can see, it's extremely fragmentary. And the way that I can tell you that this actually is Osiris is from this. This is the head and shoulders of a profile view of Osiris walking like that. And over his shoulder, we have the seat, the throne in profile, and the eye. 
this first spelling of the, of the god Osiris. And as you can see, this is from Dynasty 5, Jud Karayazezi, about 2436 BC. Now, it is very possible that Osiris existed even earlier with the name Osiris because our early funerary texts and tomb curses, which actually do exist, although not for Tut, tell us that anyone who violates a tomb will be brought before the court of the great god. That god is not named, and it may simply be a taboo on mentioning the name of the god of death. But certainly by Dynasty V, we have Osiris fully formed, fully named, and mentioned ultimately in the pyramid texts. But images that are associated with Isis and Osiris are found in the pre-dynastic period, or at least by Dynasty I. So here we have what are called Isis knots that are regularly associated with the cult of Isis. These from Dynasty I, Dynasty II, uh, first on a spoon and this part of a broken vessel. And perhaps even more significantly for our story tonight, this is an early Jed column. A Jed column is, as you can tell from these er this earliest example, an Egyptian version of a maypole. There is a ceremony that takes place marking the resurrection of Osiris in which a group of individuals pull a tree trunk up with ropes. And you can very clearly see that what we have here bundled with ropes are branches that have been attached to this tree trunk so that when it comes up, what we have is vegetation coming back to life. This is not, however, the way in which the Jed column, and Jed means stability, is regularly seen in later Egyptian times. So it's undergone a modification that I can explain to you now. Instead, we have symbols like this, and here you can see a plant form. This is a papyrus column. This doesn't look plant form at all. Uh, another a version of it here with banded decoration that, again, is not clearly for a plant. And here you can see an example of that, together with the Isis knot from Book of the Dead, spelled 155, which are protective amulets that are put with the corpse to ensure your revival in the next world. So what is this, then? A question will come up after I introduce you to another player in our story. Osiris and Isis were brother and sister. That is, they were born of earth and sky. When you are part of an initial group of deities, there's not a choice of non-siblings to marry. However, this does produce a pattern in Egyptian so that you regularly refer to your beloved as your brother and your sister, and there is zero incest taboo in ancient Egypt. And there are many examples of especially half-brother, half-sister, or cousin marriages. Now, another individual who's born at the same time is the god Set or Seth. There are two different pronunciations depending upon which part of Egypt you're living in. Seth is the god of confusion, chaos, and disorder. And he is also attested from the very beginning of Egyptian history. We have here in the pre-dynastic period on mace heads and individual little figurines, a figure that is clearly not something you can identify. Many, many Egyptologists have attempted to explain what is the Seth animal, and they produce a wide variety of options, none of which actually fit what you have. 
You have an image that has ears almost like a donkey. It has a long drooping snout. This unusual tail, in some cases, is actually an arrow stuck into his hindquarters because he has negative overtones. And as a result, to defeat him, you can actually see him defeated in his own depictions. Here he's on a protective knife, which you use together with the, the hieroglyph for protection to draw a circle around a baby's bed to keep demons from attacking you at night. So he can be quite protected in the right circumstances. But he coveted the throne of his brother Osiris, who was king of the universe. And so he developed an interesting plan. It was a game for thrones. He measured a coffin to fit one god only. This was the world's first coffin. It was a nice decorative box, and it happened to fit the measurements of Osiris and no one else. So he threw an elaborate party, invited all the gods to come, and said, I will give this party favor away to anyone whom it will fit. And so the gods all trooped up to, to line in and to try to see if they could fit it to win this wonderful box. And of course, it only fit Osiris. And the moment it fit Osiris, Seth slammed it shut, threw it in the Nile, and Osiris drowned, removing one of his problems <clears throat> for acquiring a throne. However, he hadn't reckoned with Osiris's wife, Isis. <laughs> I'll get to that, but it's relevant you see it now. Whose image is regularly depicted at the foot of all royal coffins because what she did was then to search for the coffin of Osiris, which had in the meantime floated down to the Nile through the Mediterranean Sea and into the town of Byblos where it had grown inside a tree trunk. That is the story that we are told in later Greek writers, Plutarch, and it is often suggested that this doesn't have any evidence in Egypt, but I'll disprove that for you in just a moment. Isis then goes and searches the globe, looking for the chest of Osiris. She finds it. She takes his body out, and she is about to use her powers to revive him when Seth comes upon her, finds what she has done, seizes the body, cuts it into as many as 42 parts, and casts each of them around the entire area of Egypt. So there's a part for every gnome, or Egyptian term for province or state, within the kingdom. So then Isis must go out on a secondary task, and that is to go area by area to find the individual bits of Osiris to piece him back together. Now, the way she is able to do this is because she herself is a goddess of power and magic. We have a papyrus from Turin, which tells us how Isis acquired her power. She knew that the sun god Ra would go forth through, the, through his creation every day, and he'd become old, and he dribbled and drooled because he was old. And she carefully waited till he had passed by part of a garden. She took some of his spittle. She molded it with clay that he had also made. She made it into a snake. She put it in the garden where he would walk the next day, and it bit him. And since it was made from his own divine power, his own fluids, it came alive and was powerful and could attack him. Whereupon he became extraordinarily ill, called out for someone to help him. Isis miraculously appears on the, the story and says, I'll be happy to help. But first of all, you have to tell me your secret magical name so that I can cure you. Well, he tells her all sorts of names to get out of telling her, her his absolutely true name. And of course, he's never healed. And finally, he, he says, I, I don't know what this is. I've never seen it. I didn't make it. But of course, it's as powerful as he is because it's made from his own substance. 
And eventually, after he's agonized for long enough, and the papyrus is tired and wants to stop, Isis is told secretly his, the sun god's, magical name, whereupon she heals Ra. And with that power that she's acquired now from the sun god, she can use that to heal Osiris by gathering together his many pieces. Here is an image from the temple of Dendera, which shows Osiris as the deceased form Sokar, the god of absolute inertness, in his coffin, which is within the tree of Byblos. So that is not a notion that is only known for, to Greek philosophers. It's actually something you can find in a temple setting within Egypt itself. While Osiris was still alive, he had relations with another sister, the goddess Nephthys. Nephthys was the official wife of Seth, but they didn't get along for various reasons, perhaps this being one of them. Because Anubis is the child who was born as the result of Osiris and Nephthys. And I should warn you now, this talk is about to become very X-rated, because that's part of the material. So it was the task of Osiris's son by his other sister, Nephthys, to put the body parts back together again and to create the world's first mummy. And that's what you see here in a Theban tomb. Now, the individual looks like Anubis, and it is Anubis, but the actual embalmers who played a role in the funeral would wear these masks. So when they were performing the funeral, they were actually taking on the role of Anubis the god. They became Anubis for the time of that ceremony. And we can see how this is described in the papyrus Jumilak, which shows Anubis here putting together the body of Osiris with bandages. And over here are the body parts, some of them. And you'll notice this one right there. And I hope you can recognize that from somewhat earlier. That is our Jed column, our column of stability. It has now been taken by the, probably by the New Kingdom or even earlier as the backbone of Osiris, or the tailbone, the bottom part of that backbone, which is known, of course, as the os sacrum, the sacred bone. So here it is, the sacred bone, as a part of Osiris, which is being put back together. And here is that jed column, which essentially, as a symbol of stability, the risen maypole, if you like, which was its original notion. It has been given arms holding the signs of life and the, the power of dominion, the wasp sign, and this then is a representation of the risen Osiris as a symbol of the raised tree slash backbone. Compare this image with this image where we have Isis and Nephthys who got along quite well, despite the fact that they both had children by Osiris. Here is Osiris between them. They are symbolized as the two goddesses of Upper and Lower Egypt. But this comparable pectoral from Tutankhamun shows all the same deities, but with slightly different symbolism. So here, Isis, the throne, and Nephthys, the lady of the house over here, are flanking Osiris again, but instead of being a human Osiris, it is now the Jed column. So the one equals the other. And in addition, we get a reference to how earlier embalming must have been and how the Egyptians viewed the process. 
Here is a symbol that you may know from the Tutankhamun exhibit. I'll show it to you, that particular piece, in just a moment. We have a sack here attached to a growing papyrus. And the body parts are put inside. And that's compared with, on this papyrus, a sack from which grain shoots up. This is the image from Tutankhamun's tomb. This is an animal skin, a flayed animal skin, which would have held the body parts. But look what's happened to its tail. It, the, the animal the tail winds round and round this plant to burst into a living plant. So out of death comes life, vegetable life, because that is the true meaning of what Osiris does. As we shall soon see, Osiris is not like the other rising and dying gods of the ancient Near East, of which there are many. Osiris does not come back into this world again. He stays in the underworld, but he sends up life from death. So he can create fertility while being dead. He doesn't need to revive himself into this world. He is the power from absolute sterility to produce repeating cycles of life, birth, and rebirth. Now look at this when we actually see this same symbol in painting. You can see here that the, what's being tied onto this pole, which represents fertility of plants, is a cow skin with the dappling but the tail has become yet another papyrus. So the animal, the dead, flayed animal skin actually becomes plant life. Now, in the time of Egyptian Middle Kingdom, the most famous story in Egyptian literature, the story of Sinewe, threatens the, uh, there's an individual who goes off into exile into Palestine. And he's warned, you don't want to live in Palestine and die there, because if you do, they'll put your body in an animal skin, and you won't have resurrection. Because you need coffining, you need to be buried with the rituals of Osiris. But in this early symbol, it's precisely that thing which they would later detest, the ut symbol. And ut is the Egyptian word for bandages. So this flayed animal skin becomes the embalming, becomes the symbol of the embalmer. Here it is again. Again, you can see the green plant. And here is our risen Osiris. And you will note that Osiris's skin tone is green. It is green not because he is a margin, obviously. It is green because he represents plant life. He is sometimes presented as being black-skinned. That is because he represents the black, fertile earth which comes from the floods of Egypt that regularly occurred until the building of the Aswan Dam, which brought fertile soil, which would produce the greenery. So these two colors, the black of the soil and the green of new growth, this is the essence of what Osiris is. Now, in the last month of the season of inundation, the first season of the year, temple ritual required that you actually make a little statuette of Osiris out of sand and clay and mud, and you inserted seeds within it and these would then sprout. And once they sprouted, it was an example of Osiris coming to life. And as you can clearly see, it is not simply the platforms which are erected here, but also his phallus. And that is of not an insignificant feature. Holding that for just a moment. We have one of these Osiris beds that was found in Tutankhamun's tomb, which had actually germinated in the tomb. 
There are modern reproductions of these. Uh, this was from the Louvre where they've reproduced exactly the same sort of thing where it's sprouting. And in the Cairo Museum, we have several of these little Osiris tomb figures uh, which would have been placed in the month of Koyak, the fourth month of inundation, to represent the death and rebirth of Osiris. Again, you don't see the plants because they've long since gone away, but the phallus is still pretty clear. Now, the reason why I'm stressing the phallus is because when Isis pieced back together all the parts of Osiris, there was one that was missing, and this was sort of critical. Which is why it gets special notice here in this same papyrus, which has been, I've shown, been showing you elements from about the resurrection and the, in, the burial of Osiris, the embalming. So what Isis did was she created an artificial phallus. The phallus had actually been eaten by a fish, the long-snouted fish, the oxyrhynchus fish, and as a result, fish became taboo in certain parts of Egypt. Here we can actually see the moment in which Osiris is brought back to life by the ministerings of Isis, by her magical spells. He lifts up his head, as you can see here, slowly pulling up from his body. This is in the Cairo Museum. He lifts his hands to his head as he's coming back to life. This is from the upper, the special Osiris room of Dendera. Here, the god Horus, who by the way has not yet been born, is shown uh, putting a spear to giving life to the face of the rising Osiris. Here, Horus is blessing him as he literally, this is storyboarded around the upper part of the Osiris Chapel, the top of the Temple of Dendera. He's slowly waking up with his tree there to the right, his vegetation symbol. And the reason for all of this is in a dark, very shadowy, cavernous space in the temple of Seti I at Abydos. Here we can see the moment of the resurrection of Osiris with all of its nuances. Here is the goddess Isis. You can very clearly see the crown on the top of her head. This is her son Horus, who is watching what will be soon his birth. But because the Egyptians have two notions of time, one is linear and one is circular, so that time forms a spiral, it is entirely possible for someone to see an event which has not yet happened in the endless recreation of cycles of time. So Horus is here watching Osiris come to life with that same hand of the brow posture of I'm just waking up. And then Isis taking the form of a kite settles on Osiris's entirely artificial phallus. And although Osiris is technically dead, he produces a child who is right there. So Horus is born of a deceased father because Osiris represents the capacity to send life up from death to produce new life. And this same scene appears over and over again in those same storyboarded scenes at the top of Dendera and elsewhere. Uh, you will notice that over time, Christians, Muslims, etc., have removed, hacked at the offensive phallus, but now that you've seen the other pictures, it's pretty clear how that's to be restored. And from the tomb of King Jer of Dynasty I, we have a bed which represents the actual tomb of Osiris, which was placed, unfortunately, we're not really sure of the date, 
you can see all of the cartouches and texts have been hacked out. So estimates have ranged from Dynasty 13 to Dynasty 26. It's almost illegible. That's the problem. The iconography, however, is not illegible. It's very clear. What we have here is Isis and Nephthys at either side. They're partly broken here. So the two goddesses who have taken bird form, while Isis then again takes a bird form and sits on Osiris and then produces Horus. There is, this is in the atrium of the Cairo Museum. Uh, if you go to Cairo, if you walk around under the skylights in the middle, you will see no one is actually looking at this. And this is the most sacred object from ancient Egypt. Osiris then becomes the god of the dead. He still becomes a king. He now rules in the underworld. His son Anubis now is involved with the weighing of the heart for all those who would come into his kingdom to see if they have done right or wrong, and you have to balance. In the future, every king who is Horus while alive becomes Osiris while dead, and the next king, this is Tut as Osiris, with the following King I having to perform ritual ceremonies acting as Horus for his father. Ultimately, in Egyptian mythology, the sun too must die and be reborn as he circles over the heaven and goes to the underworld. And in the middle of the night, the souls of Ra, the sun god, and Osiris actually fuse and become one god with two spirits. This is depicted again at the top of, of Dendera. Here is a scene of Osiris on his funerary bed where the light, star, starlight can come right down, or the morning sunlight can come right down on that figure and bring it to life, fusing the two souls. This is a moment of theology and magic designed to happen with every sunrise, every moonrise. This is a symbol from Nefertari's tomb which shows the ram-headed and green-faced combination of Osiris and Re. And the texts say it is Re who rests in Osiris, and it is Osiris who rests in Ra, rests in, resident in, satisfied in, merged with. So this is two gods in one. Now, in the same way that Ra is the sun god, so Osiris becomes the god of the moon, because the phases of the moon, building them up and taking them away, are like the piecing apart of Osiris and the gathering together of his pieces by Isis. Now, when the god Horus was born by Isis, she then has to protect him from continual attacks by Seth. And the image of Isis suckling her young child became ubiquitous in the Near Eastern world, and in fact, the entire Western world, because this was one of the dominant religions before Christianity. The cult of Isis penetrated as far as the Russian border, all the way up to uh, Britain and throughout Germany. So that it is hardly a surprise when we find the same image was simply borrowed directly from ancient Egypt for a new cult, Christianity. Which is, and images of Christianity are almost invariably in the earliest stages taken directly from specific biblical references. There's no reference to this. But our earliest, this is Coptic. Our earliest examples go through the Coptic church where they simply take the images of Isis and adapt them. In the Middle Ages, Isis images in Switzerland were put in churches as images of the, of the Virgin Mary. Horus has to attack his, his uncle, Seth, who takes various 
nefarious forms, including crocodiles and snakes. Here Horus is brandishing snakes which have attempted to attack him and trampling crocodiles under his feet. This is a little like St. Christopher medal that you would carry with you to protect you against snake bite. You simply put water over this, you drink the water which has come in contact with the spell, and you become healed. In the continuing fight, uh, Horus, here shown as Tutankhamun, spears his uncle who has taken on the hippopotamus or some other demonic form. Here we have the world's oldest play, storyboarded again at the Temple of Edfu. This is the play of Horus, which probably goes back into the New Kingdom or perhaps earlier. And here Horus spears a little hippopotamus who is very cutely rolling over and playing dead. At the end of this lengthy play, which actually has a chorus, the, the group of gods call out, hold fast, Horus, hold fast. So the idea of a ballet is entirely fitting because this was performed on a sacred lake. So we actually had our world's first full drama with chorus about the exploits of Horus. It's like a medieval mystery play. At the end of that play, by the way, you carve up a hippopotamus and you give pieces of the hippo to all the participants and the viewers. So it's like a communion. Now, since I've launched off onto Egyptian Christian parallels, let me continue. In the Roman period, Horus is updated in his dress in the same way that in the Renaissance you would have saints wearing contemporary clothing. Here is the Horus on a horse who is spearing his demonic enemy, who here you can see is as a crocodile, and you will be not surprised at all to notice that this is the direct antecedent of that. So St. George on the dragon is directly coming from Horus spearing Seth. However, ultimately these deities who fought against each other to the death, as it were, but they're gods so they can get over that, um, are reconciled. Ultimately what happens is the god Osiris threatens the court of the gods saying that if you do not give this prize to my son, and what we have here is an issue over who should inherit. Should it be the older brother or should it be the son? So this is two forms of inheritance. Uh, we could go off on anthropological lines there, but we won't. So ultimately they are reconciled because parts of Egypt are given to each of the two parties. And you can see them here happily, Horus on the left, Seth on the right, tying together in the symbol of the uniting of the two lands, the parts of Egypt, obviously in peace. And here they are together crowning Ramses III. So the, the, the builder of Medina Habu where the Oriental Institute has worked for so many generations. You can even have scenes like this from the temple of uh, Montu, which have a tag text which refers to giving the king the years of Horus and the years of Seth. And at Karnak, in the blockyard in the back, we have the god Seth, who's a little broken over here, saying that he has given to you, the king's son Wasret, the years of Seth on the throne of Horus. So obviously they seem to be satisfied. And why is that? Here, Horus and Seth together teach King Tuthmosis III. Seth is teaching him archery. And here, Seth has been placed in his most important role after the resolution of business, and that is he uses his hostile forces against more demonic forces, the snake Apep, who threatens to swallow the sun every morning and plunge the world back into ultimate chaos. So the power of Seth is diverted against the enemies and he becomes an all-important protector of the state and a war god. And the father of Ramses the Great even has a stela from the, known as the 400-year stela. Here's King Seti I, 
who is named, of course, after Seth. Seti means one of Seth. He grew up in the town that was Avarus, which was the seat of the Hyksos, who worshipped the god Baal, who the Egyptians identified with Seth. So here the king is worshipping his namesake Egyptian deity who is shown in the form of a Hyksos Palestinian deity, Baal. So the Egyptians, especially the family of Ramses, had no problems with Semitic deities. They welcomed them, they worshipped them, they didn't persecute them. And they even gave Seth a corresponding wife, because Nephthys had clearly abandoned him. And this is the goddess Astarte, and this is shown from the temple of Edfu, who is a warrior goddess from the east, who's now being equipped as if she were Sakhmet, an Egyptian warrior goddess. Now how is all of this possible? And here I'm about to conclude. The reason is very simple. It is a truism in Egypt, a cliche, that you can stand with one foot in productive land and another foot in sterile sand. The Egyptians referred to these as the black land over here because it had black fertile soil and the red land over here because the desert has a sort of a reddish glow to it. And here you can see the dividing line between them at Saqqara. This is what Horus got. This is what Seth got. So it is only with the unification of these two seeming opposites, order and disorder, that the world works. You can't have one without the other. Seth is not a demon or a devil inherently evil. He is a force that must be incorporated into the universe. Even as the, the river Nile, which is fertile, is Osiris, it comes from the, the cut, the, from the running off fluids of his dissected corpse. So the sea, which is saline and doesn't grow anything, fish don't count, because we know what they did. <laughs> that is for Seth. All the foreign lands are for Seth, so all the gods out there are Seth, so he's got more than enough. So these two are fully reconciled to the point that you can have an image like this, which represents the one of the two faces, which is one God who is at the same time Horus and Seth. This is the kind of melding that you can find within Egyptian theology, which is not something that's easily found elsewhere. Thank you very much.